Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Welcome to 20. 20. Can you believe it? We are here. We are in a new year. We're in a new decade. Ready or not, off to the races we go. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. All right. A year ago, it was 2019. And maybe you were thinking about, I think I'd like to be a speaker. I'm interested in, in booking more gigs. And you reached the end of 2019. Did you accomplish your goal? Did you get to where you wanted to go? Is your business where you want it to be at this point? And so I want you to think about it. if we were to fast forward at this point, at the beginning of 2020, at the end of this year, where do you want your speaking business to be? What changes, what actions do you need to take? What things do you need to do in order to make sure that you arrive there? Because just thinking about it, just thinking, yes, I want to be there. Yes, I want th something to magically change or happen. Doesn't do anything. Clicking your heels together, wishing and hoping is not a strategy. So I want you to ultimately take action. Now, one of the resources and tools that we have put together is a brand new book to help you accomplish your goals in the speaking world in 2020. The book is called The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building Your Platform. The book is going to be out February the 18th, but you can definitely pre-order it now. In fact, if you pre-order it, now we will send you a number of bonuses, including the audiobook. So uh, you can get a couple different formats just by uh, ordering the book. So again, all you got to do is go over to thespeakerlab.com slash book, thespeakerlab.com slash book, pre-order the book there, and uh, then we can send you all kinds of bonuses. But again, the book will be out February 18th. So we are extremely excited about the book. It is all things, everything that you need to know about finding and booking gigs, whether you want to speak full-time or just a couple of times, uh, the book is for you. Again, the successful speaker, go pick it up today. Okay, so today we're going to be talking with Nick Morgan. Nick, we had on the show a couple of years ago, back in episode 153. Uh, Nick has been in the speaking industry for a long time, is just a wealth of knowledge and, and a great guy. So we talk about his new book, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. We talk about whenever you are, you know how you're, you're speaking with someone in person and you have the facial expressions, you have the gestures, you have their, their uh, nonverbal communication. You lose a lot of that whenever you're interacting with clients via email, via your website, via phone, even via video. And so we talk about how you need to be thinking that through in communication with potential clients to make sure that you are getting the correct message across to the clients that you want them to receive. One of my favorite parts of this conversation is the power of emojis. We spend a few minutes talking about emojis and uh, he shares a stat that I think you're really going to find interesting whenever it comes to emojis. So wide ranging conversation. I think you're going to enjoy this. Let's jump right into the conversation with Mr. Nick Morgan. Enjoy. 
Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, joined by my friend Nick Morgan. We had Nick uh, on back in episode 153. It has been way too long. I don't know why we had to wait this long to get you back. Did you do something wrong? Are you in timeout? Why did it take this long to get you to come back? I've been sitting in the naughty chair for two years waiting for you to let me go. Good Grant, to so, have uh, you back. You're thanks. out of timeout and it. you're back in the game. So <laughs> thanks for coming back. Now, one of the things, uh, I know when we were talking last time, we covered a, a wide variety of things uh, as it relates to just your speaking business and your your speaking career. Mm. For those that haven't listened to that, definitely encourage people to go back, listen to that. 153, we'll link up to it. But give us the quick nutshell for people who aren't familiar with you. What is it that you do in the, in the speaking world? Yeah, so I help people tell their stories. I've been doing that now for 22 years. Uh, that means that I work with speakers mostly. I also work with executives who are um, looking to up their communications game. But I mostly work with speakers, professional speakers, uh, to help them figure out how to give truly kick-ass speeches. As everybody listening to your podcast knows, the speaking business just has gotten crazy competitive now. So everybody's got to be at the top of their game. Uh, and if you're not the person who's fighting with you for that business, it will be at the top of his or her game. So uh, you better be. And so we work with speakers on how to give kick-ass speeches, how to develop their expertise, because it's ultimately what you're hired for is your expertise. That might mean writing a book. That might mean developing uh, expertise in a number of other ways now in the virtual world. And then finally helping them figure out how to um, uh, sort of package and market and, and brand the business. That's a that's sort of the third thing we do. It's not our specialty, but it naturally flows from once we've worked on the speech or once we've worked on your expertise, then we have some good ideas about how to present you to the world. All right. I got a hypothetical question here. You have speaker A, who is an amazing speaker and they're mediocre at best on the marketing and branding side, or speaker B, who is amazing on the marketing and branding side, and they're a good enough speaker. Which one's more successful? In the short run, I'm going to You can make a case you, either way. Yeah, yeah, you really could. Uh, I'm going to say in the short run, the marketing uh, expert, the marketing guru might get the, the gigs at first. Yeah. In the long run, the speaking business is a very small business. It's astonishing how small it is. Yeah. And very quickly, you get known on the circuit for what you're good at and what you're not so good at. Um, and uh, for example, a, a simple example of that is uh, people who are difficult to work with they get known um, and they don't get hired yeah. simply because there are enough other alternatives that if I could work with somebody who's pretty good as a speaker, but who's great to work with, who's an easy, just an easy person to get along with and to hire and, and, to, and to go through all the hoops and, uh, that it takes to get a speaker on stage, then I'm going to work with that person over the person who's a bit of a diva. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's one thing that we, we tell speakers all the time that you can, you can be good enough on stage, but if you're great to work with and you just make the, the job of the event planner, the decision maker, you make their life easy. And like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are, you know, that you're this prima donna diva or anything, but you are, uh, when they ask you for something that you're replying quickly, that you're getting what they need back to them, that whenever you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time for a tech run through or sound check, that you're there, that they're not having to chase you down for things like yeah. those things really, really matter. And they can be a big difference maker for, you know, whether or not a speaker gets hired on a consistent basis long term. Yeah, absolutely. They're huge. The, the thing about the speaking business that, or the conference business that, uh, that speakers don't understand it when they get into it is that from the point of view of a meeting planner, there's a huge amount of downside risk in their business and not yeah. much upside potential. And think about it for all the conferences you've ever been to, right? If something goes wrong, you notice, and, and that's the 
kind of thing that motivates you to write that note or, or to, uh, to mark it down in the comments. If everything goes great, you probably don't notice. Yeah. So how can a speaker contribute to that? Like how can a speaker be the one that, that they're, they're fine on stage? They're, again, it's kind of good enough, but what are the things that, that a speaker can do off stage that really moves the needle for an event planner that makes them more referable and, and the type of speaker that they want to work with long-term? Be absolutely consistent in your dealings with uh, Bureau. And, and as you alluded to, never be late, uh, never forget, uh, never drop a ball. One of the things that you'll find as you get into the business is that surprisingly often that 45-minute speech that you're expecting to give turns into a 30-minute speech mm-hmm. or a 20-minute speech. I can't tell you how many times uh, I've had standing backstage, and I don't do a lot of speaking. I do a little bit. I'm mostly a coach. But how many times I stood backstage and the, uh, the my handler will come up to me and whisper in my ear, uh, Nick, we're running a little late on this. Can you carve five minutes off the yep. end of your speech, 10 minutes off the end of your speech? You're expected at that point to say, yep, no problem. Yeah. That's what the pros do. And you're not expected to throw a hissy fit at that point. But yeah. I literally was standing backstage earlier this year. I was all set. I was all mic'd up. We tested everything. The previous speaker was was talking. I was ready to go. And and then they got a signal saying, she's running long. She's running yeah. long. She's going to run long. And I'm not quite sure how that happened. I think she must have sent them a note somehow. Uh, maybe, or maybe she'd warned them in advance that she was going to run long. Anyway, the word was while I was standing there and she was talking that she was going to run long. And they were yeah. saying like maybe 15 minutes long. So can you cut? So I'm mentally cutting the speech <laughs> as we're going in. As we're getting closer and closer to the end, the, the scheduled end of her speech. I'm cutting and cutting because I'm figuring she's got to yeah. wait. Yeah. And then like two minutes before the end of, of her speech, I said, oh, she's going to end on time. And, and Nick, put all that stuff back in that you were going to take out. <laughs> You'd be surprised how uh, how rattling that was, but you know, that's what you're supposed to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminded me, I did a gig several years ago where it's basically kind of a one-day conference and I was doing the, the opening keynote and they wanted me to do the closing keynote. So two different talks, same audience. And so there was some type of like weather issue going on. And so it kind of it's pushed the start of the event back a little bit. And so do the opening and it goes fine. But then like they just got way off schedule. Mm. And I had told them ahead of time, like I was going to be, I think I was flying out to another event that night. And so I'm kind of just watching the clock, watching the clock, watching the clock and realizing like this, the closing session I'm supposed to do later that afternoon isn't going to happen on time. And so I am, it was the weirdest feeling because I was sitting at the back of the room with kind of the the co of one of the other event planners. And the client that I had directly worked with was on stage, kind of going through some announcements or I don't know, something there. And I'm talking with this other person. I'm like, okay, same type of thing. I'm going, I'm supposed to do, you know, 45 minutes. Okay, now we're down to 30. Now we're down to 20. Now we're down to 15. And before long, I'm telling them like, I have to leave to go to the airport. Like I told you guys this. And they're like, yeah, we're sorry. You can go. And so they paid me for two talks and the way the schedule ran, like I only did one. And it was a weird, awkward thing. But yeah, part of it is just you're being good to work with. And yeah. part of it, it seems like part of it's not only just being good to work with, but it feels like part of it is just being like a good, nice, normal, decent human being. Because like you said, so many speakers may be the, the diva or they may be, you know, just kind of that prima donna pain in the butt to work with that just mm-hmm. nobody wants to be around. So yeah. how much of a difference do you feel like that makes for a for an event planner of just like again just being nice being polite being kind to the people that you're working with 
I think that's huge. Event planners are typically, it's not always the case, but typically they're in an interesting position. They're usually fairly low down in their organizations. They don't have a lot of positional power. And yet they're the ones whose butts are on the line when things go wrong. They're going to get blamed. So when you think about that, somebody who's got a lot of responsibility, but not much authority, that's somebody who's really going to value being treated nice. Yeah. And so it kind of ties into your, your latest book, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. Because whenever, oftentimes, we are, we're hired to speak, we're hired by someone who's never really interacted with us versus, you know, maybe we've had a phone call or two with them, largely through perhaps email, maybe through a third party, whether that's a bureau or through a, an agent or an agency or someone from, you know, our own team. And we show up and we're supposed to be, you know, amazing to work with. And really, they're taking a, the event planner or decision makers taking a big risk that that's actually going to be the case and be fulfilled when we actually show up. So I want to talk about that. But first of all, can mm-hmm. you kind of give us a big picture view of, of what the, the book is about and how it applies to speakers? Yeah, absolutely. I had gone around the world for many years, still do, uh, talking about body language and storytelling as well. But body language is one of my favorite subjects. And in the last five years or so, I started more and more often as my first question during the Q&A, getting the following Somebody would raise his hand and say, uh, thanks, Nick, this body language stuff's really interesting. But I manage a team that's um, based in India and, and California and France. Yeah. So I never see them face to face. If body language is so important, how do I do that? That thing that you do over body language, that, that kind of deep communication that happens between two people automatically, how do I do that virtually? Yeah. And so I thought, my first reaction was, well, duh, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I thought, that's not a good enough answer. <laughs> uh, so I better come up with a better one. So I started doing research on it. And I found, really to my surprise, just how bad in the communication sense the virtual world is. And very quickly, and everybody has had personal experience with this, but what happens is we tend to blame everybody else for what goes wrong. <laughs> rather than taking the ownership ourselves. But what happens is most forms of virtual communication strip out the emotional information that you automatically exchange face-to-face. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're talking to somebody face-to-face, you smile, you nod, you can touch them on the arm. If you say something harsh to a friend, you can soothe them with your facial expression or, again, with a touch on the arm. You can't do any of that virtually. And so 90% of the time, We think that our emails and text messages, for example, are understood. They're actually understood only 50% of the time. Hmm. Now, for those of you clever with math, you'll realize that means they're misunderstood 50% of the time. That's a pretty high error rate. And so that's the first big thing I found is just that we are not communicating anything like as well as we thought. And one of my favorite examples of this is... um, I'll ask audiences, so how many of you sent a two-word email to a friend, a colleague, a direct report, nice job, great job, good job? Everybody sent one of that email, probably multiple times. And I'll ask, so would it surprise you to learn that 60% of the time, that two-word email is taken as sarcastic? And I'll get usually an audible gasp from the audience when I talk about that because people are really, are truly shocked. They'll say like, how could you misunderstand that? What possible way could you misconstrue good job right, right. to be anything but good job? And the answer is that we have a, uh, a negativity bias. So uh, think about it. We humans have evolved to stay alive because we worried about saber-toothed tigers hiding behind trees and that kind of thing. We were a weak species in the, in the natural world. And so the humans that survive were the ones who worried a lot. 
And so when we don't get good information, as happens in the virtual world, we don't get good inf emotional information about how the other person is feeling toward us or what, what that other person intends. We make it up and we tend to have a negativity bias. So there with that, you think when you're sending that two word email, nice job, that you mean nice job, but the other person is thinking, was he smiling or was she smiling right. when she said that? Or was there some sarcasm in the tone? 60% of the time, you're going to then assume, because you have a negativity bias, you're going to assume sarcasm. So that's the first thing to understand. And, and sort of the first big finding in the book was, hello, you've got to realize that most forms of virtual communication have a negativity bias built in. And so you're, the odds are you're going to be misunderstood and you're going to be misunderstood in a way that doesn't help your case. Interesting. I want to dig into that a little bit more, but and mm. as far as like how that applies to speakers, I'm thinking like before you even start interacting with a client or before you step on stage to speak, how does that apply like in terms of even your marketing materials, any emails that you would send out to potential clients or even the copy that you would use on website, word choice, any of that type of stuff? How should speakers be thinking about what they say and how it could come across, especially, especially on a website or some type of marketing material like that? Yeah, so that I say, and I have lots and lots of uh, examples and fixes in the book. But I say we're all like generals fighting the last war. Proverbially, you, as you, if you've heard that expression, you know that generals are famously supposed to, if they won or lost the last war, they study it and then they they fight the same way again the next time around. So we're still communicating as if we were communicating face to face. Yeah, and so we what we don't do is when we're communicating with somebody, we don't put in the adjectives that say, well, Grant, it's fabulous to be able to talk to you right now. We assume you get the fabulous part. Right. Well, online, you don't. And remember, there's a negativity bias. So not only are you not getting that I feel fabulous talking to you, Grant, but you're likely to assume that not only do I not feel fabulous, but I probably feel a little pissed off to be talking to you, right? So unless I correct that misapprehension, why uh, that misimpression, why uh, you're going to assume the negative. So that uh, the way that rolls out in the, uh, in, in the kind of marketing materials that you allude to is that you have to, you have to put in the emotional um, wording that would otherwise uh, would come across naturally uh, yeah. in a face-to-face -face session. Yeah. So like on a website, for example, or maybe in a, in a bio or something like that, what would you, do you have an example of like what you might put there to insert some of that emotional language? Yeah. So uh, I think you're getting in touch with a uh, meeting planner, say, and you're, and you're sending your material. Ask yourself, how do I want to be perceived by that person? Yeah. So what kind of person am I? Am I an upbeat, enthusiastic, fun to work with, easygoing, great human being? Yeah. Well, most people would probably say, yeah. If you don't put all those kinds of signals into your copy, yeah. the other person is going to assume that you're kind of an average to negative, yeah. kind of low-key person who's not very much fun to work with because that's what's going to come across. So you've got to yeah. overhype the fun part. You've got to give real examples and put it in your photography, of course, too, that kind of thing uh, in the imagery. But you've got to over-egg, if you will, the positive elements of the persona that you want to come across. How do you do that though, in a way that, that you find the right balance? Cause it seems like on one side you're doing it to get the correct emotion across, but if you go too far with it, it almost comes, I can see how it could come across, you know, hokey or cheesy. So how do you find the right balance of, I am sending the correct signal to this person that's being received in the proper way and not coming across as, as too much or over the top. So the cheap way to do that, if, if you don't have the ability to uh, bring in a bunch of friends or a, 
even a real focus group and get a reaction, which would be my first recommendation is yeah. test the stuff out and just ask people that very question. How is this coming across? What's the persona in my marketing material? We so often don't do that. We, we think we describe the, we write the or create the marketing material to tell about our attributes and our ideas and our positions and that kind of thing. But we rarely read it or, or study it or test it to see how it's coming across emotionally. Yeah. So if you've got to do that on your own, though, if you're a one-stop shop uh, just starting out as a speaker, then I would say uh, read it to yourself, read it out loud as if you were a nasty, sarcastic person and see if the wording sustains that possibility. Yeah, interesting. You can't say, I'm really thrilled to be working with you. Or it's hard to say, I'm really thrilled to be working with you in a way that sounds deeply sarcastic and negative because yeah. the word thrill there signifies a positive emotional uh, connection. And, and so it's that kind of thing. If you can read the, the language, if you can read your, your marketing copy and it sounds like it could be sarcastic or negative, then that's how people are going to read it. Yeah. That's now, kind of shocking for people to hear, but that's the, what the research shows. Now, obviously, this, I think people understand how this applies whenever it comes to someone reading the written word, uh, which on that note, and I don't mean this to be a silly question, but how much do you feel like adding an emoji to an email, to a text makes a difference? And so people have some sense of, of the tone that's, coming, that's meant to come across. I'm a big fan of emojis. In fact, yeah. at the publication of the book, I did a piece for the Wall Street Journal in which, uh, which I addressed supposedly the Wall Street Journal's readers who are supposed to be high-level executives, right? The, and, the ins and outs of, of emojis. Yeah, right. And I said, get over yourselves. You all think, the studies show that you think that emojis are childish and juvenile. Yeah. And for people under 30 who are just starting out in the business world, if anybody at all, and I said, yeah. you've got to get over yourselves. We should all be using emojis. Emojis yeah. are a bit of a blunt instrument, and sure, they can be crude at times. But back to that two-word email I was talking about earlier, if you say good job and put a smiley face, yeah. it's unambiguous. Nobody's going to read that sarcastically. People are going to think, oh, yeah, he means that. And so it's time to get over our hang-ups about emojis and start, and start using them. Wouldn't necessarily use them in your marketing copy or your right. descriptions of yourself in that sense, but certainly in your text messaging and your uh, uh, emails to uh, potential uh, hires. And in fact... There's research that shows the more emojis you use, the more likely you are to have a successful business outcome in an exchange of emails. That's interesting. There's Isn't some that, direct, fascinating? direct correlation there between the, the volume of, of uh, emoji usage and your, uh, your success in your business. And yeah, uh, it's a blunt instrument. And that's not a license from Nick Morgan <laughs> at all to use 52 emojis after your one right, or two right. sentences of prose. No, that's not what I'm saying. Do it appropriately. But do use emojis. Uh, okay, so also I'm, I'm wondering about um, whenever you're, you're interacting with a, a client or a potential client, one thing I try to do a lot more lately is I, use vid is I record a video because I know if they can see my face and see me, I could type everything out that I'm, I need to say. It's hypothetically actually quicker for me just to record myself talking to a video. There's a lot of free tools for that. I use Loom and Screencastify mm -hmm. and you, know, you can record a, a 90 second or 60 second video and get the get the message across, but getting it across where someone can see your face, they can hear your tone, hear your expression. Mm -hmm. How much or how valuable is video over text where the receiving party can see all of those nonverbals? In the virtual world, there's a hierarchy. There's a clear hierarchy. So the, the worst form of communication, because it has the less emotional information, the least emotional information from the point of view we're, we're talking about here, is text and, and written communications. The next level is getting on the phone. You get a little more information through that. Surprisingly, not much more. 
because of the compression ratios of the way sound is conveyed over the telephone. Mm-hmm. It actually doesn't convey much emotional information. Um, but the best is video. So the, the quick answer to your question is yes, use video. The longer answer says, okay, so understand that busy video can be hard and lighting is important. So if you're going to be serious and use a lot of video, then you want to have a studio like you do and you want to have it properly lit and you want to practice because it ain't a natural act. At first, you're going to be clumsy on video and you've got to mm-hmm. sort of get over yourself and all that self-consciousness. So it takes a while to get good on video, but good video... Uh, to your point, is preferable to the other forms of virtual communication because simply because it gives more of that visual form of, of uh, human uh, connection right. uh, that people can see. And, and it's just an easier way for us to understand what you're about. Now, but how polished does a video need to be if it's, especially if it's just, if it's one to many, you know, if it's a YouTube or Facebook Live or whatever, I certainly would agree with that. But if it's, you know, if I'm responding to an email to you or if you and I are corresponding or, you know, I wanted to just say hey to you or something or ask a question or whatever, doing a video just to you, how, you know, one-to-one, how polished does that need to be and how, how high does the presentation value need to be on something like that? Okay. So yeah, it's, it's great. You raised the right, exactly the right point. And I would say the answer is keep it conversational. Absolutely. Keep it feeling human, but don't be fooled. If you shoot that thing just in an office with normal lighting, you're going to look like a criminal on screen. Yeah. Uh, that's just the way the, the cameras don't let in as much light as your eyeballs do. So you need to have more light there than feels natural. And, and you've got to get used to the fact that you're talking on screen. The, the other aspect of it is that while it looks more like face-to-face than a text message, it's still a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional human being. Yeah. And so you look different on computer screen than you do face to face. And you need to know what those differences are and light accordingly. Some people's faces look very haggard on, um, on a computer screen uh, just because of the way their uh, facial bones are constructed. Right, right. And so they need to learn about lighting. And so there is a fair amount of work that it's not about the, the production value of the conversation per se, but it's about making yourself look human in that uh, two-dimensional space. And it's not as easy as we think. I want to take a step back on the hierarchy. So you mentioned text and then phone and then video. So if we go to the middle there on phone, a lot of interaction, especially with potential clients and even clients that you, you've booked and you're just kind of working out the kinks and the details leading up to an event. A lot of that is going to be happening over the phone. Is there anything that a speakers, that speakers can be doing or be aware of mistakes that they may be making without even knowing it about when they're talking on the phone? Because you get the tone part of it, but you're not, you're, you're losing the facial expressions. You're used, losing some of the, the hand gestures and some of the, the movement that you can pick up via video or via in person. So anything that we should be aware of when we're talking to clients or potential clients over the phone? Yeah, we've all been kids. We've all been infants. And it may astound you and your listeners to learn that it takes us approximately eight years as a child to learn how to have a human conversation that we get good at it. And if right, you think about on, it, hang on, say that again, eight yeah. years just to have like to have a human conversation from birth to eight is about age eight that kids can have a pretty reasonable conversation. And you've certainly had this okay. experience yeah. talking to a five-year-old. Uh, you know, they don't make yeah. eye contact. They space out. They say something completely irrelevant, right? Okay. They haven't yeah. learned how to have a conversation. It takes sense. humans eight years to learn to do that. Wow. So think about the phone. A huge amount of that conversation is the signals, the little signals that we hand each other in terms of eye contact, handing off the conversation so that we don't have to interrupt each other constantly. Right. 
all those go away over the phone. And so the first thing that happens is all that those eight years of competence that we've carefully developed pretty much goes out the window in terms of at least the conversational handoffs and the, the nodding to show that you understand and, and then, hey, I'm nodding to you, Grant, because I'm saying, that sounds great. And yeah. as you wrap up, I'm just, I'm going to slip something really smart right. in here, right? You can't do any <laughs> of that on the phone. And so it feels clumsy, you, especially with somebody you don't know. If, if it's an old friend, yeah. you'll find it's a little easier because you guys have your, your relationship. And so you know kind of each other's speech patterns. With somebody new, you don't know that. And so the, the conversation is going to be clumsier. So the, the, the way to think about it is try to be your own MC in the sense that it's good to be uh, quite vocal about the things. Here's what we're trying to accomplish on this call. Okay, we're five minutes into the call. Let's just review. We've covered this. We, to the extent that you can stand to do that, the more that you sort of report on the progress of the call and are you getting a chance to ask the questions that you need to ask, the, the, that kind of thing that, that sound may sound like sort of elaborate courtesy, but that's good, especially in the initial kinds of calls that you have with uh, people to set up the relationship. It's better to uh, err on the side of almost exaggerated uh, formality and politeness in that sense, in the sense of, of the structure of the conversation, um, than it is to just sort of stumble through it and interrupt each other and that kind of thing. That makes sense. That's why, you know, so as we record this, one of the things we were talking about, I talk about with, with any guests on the show is we leave the video on while we're talking, but we're only obviously using the audio for the podcast. But like you were saying, those visual cues, so, you know, neither of us are stepping on each other's toes while they're talking. And just even, you know, as you nod your head, knowing that, okay, because if you're talking to someone on the phone, you know, part of the time you're going like, I don't know, maybe they're not even listening right now. Maybe they're off doing something else. And I have got it on mute. They're shopping. Yeah, they're doing their Christmas shopping on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So those like those visual cues definitely make a big difference. So you have you have text, you have phone, you have video. Uh, the the highest level I assume then is just obviously meeting in person because that completely changes the dynamic of the relationship. So right. for for speakers, like how important is that for uh, connecting not only with uh, with event planners in person, but also just connecting with other speakers in person? Why does that even matter? Yeah. So the thing to think about is that this is a business based entirely on trust. Yeah like a lot of human interaction businesses, but it's based on trust. You have to make it so that the meeting planners trust you, the speakers bureaus trust you, the other speakers trust you. It's a trust business. Something funny happens to trust in the virtual world, and that is it becomes more fragile. And we learn to trust people very quickly. We humans are very good at sussing out to our own satisfaction whether you trust somebody or not face-to-face. Yeah. Based on an, an hour luncheon, we'll shake hands and set up a lifetime business arrangement, right? right. Or, or a dinner or, or even a conversation. Right. Um, online, over the phone, text messages, email, even video uh, to a slightly lesser extent, we substitute that feeling of trust because we don't get it in the fullest sense. So we substitute something else for that. The shortcut we use is consistency. Now, this is really important for speakers to get because what this means, what I'm saying is that my test for you as somebody I'm trying to have a virtual relationship and your test for me is consistency. And if, therefore, I am inconsistent at all, you're going to write me off as untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Humans are inconsistent beings. (laughs) That's our nature. It's very difficult for us to be consistent. But that means 
if you're, uh, for example, we, we talked about some of the simple things you can do at the beginning of the podcast to be a, a better uh, partner with uh, speaker bureaus and meeting planners or whatnot. One of them is being on time. Now, if we're meeting face-to-face and I'm coming to you through traffic and you're coming to me through traffic and you're like two minutes late, no big deal, right? You'll shake hands. Yeah. You'll say, I'm sorry. You'll look sincere like you mean it. And you'll explain to me about how crappy the traffic was on the freeway. And I'll go, yeah, no problem. I get it. Yeah. Online, you can say as much of that as you want. It doesn't count for shit. Excuse the language. Hmm. It doesn't. It's consistency. So you've got to be always on time. Always. No excuses. Always on time. That's what I mean by consistency. In every aspect of your relationship with the, uh, with, with the people you deal with online, you have to think about what is a completely consistent brand and how can I make sure that I never vary from that? Because the first sign of inconsistency, I'm going to stop trusting you. Yeah. Now, that's a cruel and unusual way to treat other human beings. But that's what we do online because we don't have the depth of emotional commitment that people make automatically face-to-face. Well, it kind of reminds me of like, uh, you know, the expression that it takes, what, a lifetime to build up integrity, but it takes a moment to lose it. But uh, the same could be said for trust. And maybe even more so whenever it comes to something like, something like business and something like in a virtual world where that's all just kind of amplified. So you yeah. mentioned like just being on time. Are there other examples that speakers may not even be aware of, of, Hey, here's how you're coming across inconsistent and they're just, they're just blind to it. Any other examples that come to mind? Yeah. So um, the kinds of sarcastic comments that two friends could make face to face and with a little wink or a nod or a smile or a touch on yeah. the arm to signal that you didn't really mean it. Right. Don't try it. And, and you're going to try to relieve your tension. Let's say you're having a high-stakes conversation with a yeah. meeting planner, and there's a lot of money on the table, I mean, uh, and you're hoping to land this gig. Don't try to relieve your tension with a cute little sarcastic comment because that's almost always going to backfire. Until you know that person well, you just can't take the chance on it. And so that, that's what I mean about being consistent. You have to live your brand. Think very hard about what's the brand that I'm portraying to the world and then how can I, in every action, large and small, be consistent with that in every interaction with the, uh, with the meeting planners, the conference uh, organizers, and so on? Are there any speakers that come to mind that do this really, really well? Yeah, so a good friend of mine, whom I've known for years, Tim Sanders, you probably know his name. Um, mm-hmm. he's the, he started out as the love cat, and he was yep. all about the love in the business world. And something he does beautifully, uh, really, is he c- carries that brand through. Like it's just everybody who works with Tim knows they're going to get the love cat every step of the way. And so he is one of the best people in the world to work with uh, over and over again. Uh, and there's just no, there's never a touch of the diva about Tim. Uh, yeah. And uh, um, he's a good example. I would say for people looking to understand that study, his website, his marketing materials, and, and then, and then go hear him speak. Cause he's also a great speaker. Yeah. And I think again, that's that everything you just said there really amplifies the point we made at the, at the beginning of the show that you described Tim and how great Tim was. And then the, the last remark was how good of a speaker he is. Right. Yeah, and right. Tim is a phenomenal speaker. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But everything you said was Tim's great to work with. He's a great human being off stage, yeah. which yeah. is also what not only event planners want, but audiences want, you know, like there's nothing more depressing than like, there's this person I looked up to admired, respected. And I had this idea of what they were. And then I met them and they were a jerk or they were something right. totally different. And it just like, right. Oh, that's such a bummer. You know, I thought they were this <laughs> and they're actually that. But Tim is a, is a great example of, He's a great person on stage, but he's a great person off stage too. And so you have that consistency and that that congruency. 
Yep. And that's the same on steroids in the virtual world. And that's the important thing to understand is that uh, you simply can't get away with that kind of sloppy behavior. I had a beautiful uh, instance of that the other day. I was talking to a potential client and we were arranging a Skype thing. And it was a, this was back in the summer. It was a hot day and I had been out running errands somewhere and I came back and I was running a little late. And then wouldn't you know it, the internet was a bit spotty. Uh, and so I signed on about two minutes late. The sound isn't coming through. Things are just kind of screwed yeah. up. This is not my fault. I'm not an IT guy. Uh, (laughs) And yet, and yet I was keenly aware about 10 minutes in, we finally got the the stupid, uh, the screens and TVs and IT and everything working. Right. By then that potential client had formed an opinion of me that I was a late technologically incompetent. Yeah. I won't use the word, but, uh, (laughs) but uh, kind of a clumsy human being, nothing I could do would undo that impression that had been made the first impressions we make of people are very durable. Uh, and so no business resulted from that. And I wanted to say to, to him, like 15 minutes in, when I realized this was going down the tubes, I wanted to say, hey, I'm not that guy. I know you think I'm that late, tiresome, technologically incompetent guy. That's not me, really, honestly. Most of the time, see, and we can get away with most of the time face-to-face. Yeah. But online, we can't. Yeah. Has to be 100%. Makes sense. Nick, thanks for the time, man. The book is Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. If people want to find out more about you, find out info on the book, where can we go? You can go to publicwords with a D.com, uh, and there's a, a huge set of free resources on there uh, in the blog, in the form of the blog, and videos, and all kinds of things to, to tell you more about public speaking. Um, and you can find a link to the book there as well. Awesome. Nick, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Grant, it's been awesome again. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nick Morgan. Again, I'd encourage you to check out his new book, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. Uh, So definitely check that out. Check out his work over at Public Works or Public Words, excuse me, publicwords.com. Now, while you are picking up his book, also don't forget to pick up our new book, The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid and Building Your Platform. Again, you can find that by going over to thespeakerlab.com slash book, thespeakerlab.com slash book. Listen, I've got uh, 12, 13 years worth of uh, knowledge in the speaking industry. I've been in the business for a long time, took everything I know and put it into a book. And you can pick it up for like 20, 25 bucks, something like that. That is a bargain, my friend. So if you are serious about finding and booking gigs and uh, speaking, whether a couple times or a whole bunch of times, then the successful speaker is the book, is the guide, is the handbook that you need. Uh, so they, don't, don't, don't ding around. Go pick up the book. The successful speaker is the book that you need. All right. Again, you can find that by, by pre-ordering and going over to the speakerlab.com slash book, the speakerlab.com slash book. All right, my friends. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.